Welcome to Postwave. You're here with Eric and Trevor. Today we're talking about the first chapter of David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. So, uh, you read any good books lately? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I've been reading, I read Infinite Jest lately. Oh, wow, like yesterday? <laughs> yeah, in fact, well, I read a part of it yesterday. What about you, Trevor? Infinite Jest? I've never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, must no. be some elitist bullshit. Yeah. No, yeah, I read the I read the first chapter yesterday and it pretty much like immediately pulled me in. Just like, mm. yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not someone who gets really infatuated with like writing and the way people write, but it's hard not to, with just the way that every sentence has like so much detail in it and so much. Absolutely. Uh, so much thought has obviously gone into gone into the whole thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it, it's so remarkable because it's such a long and complicated book mm-hmm. where every single moment has the exact same amount of detail to the point where it's not something that he could have sat down and uh, crafted meticulously over. It, it, it was like a natural outpouring mm-hmm. of his inner expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems, uh, yeah, it seems like he comes through in the book his personality mm. comes through a lot. I mean, cause it's, it's from the first person perspective of that. Yeah. At least in the beginning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although, <laughs> I have to say my favorite part of it is that like the, the 18 year old character who's narrating, like everyone around him is saying that like basically the whole thrust of the chapter is that he's there in front of the admissions people at a college and they're asking him why his test scores are, so low and he, his nine essays are like all on these crazy like advanced academic topics and like <laughs> yeah. but then the so the but then the way it's narrated is like from a very intelligent point of view where he's like literally like critiquing other people's usage and <laughs> uh, <laughs> using terms like usage yeah. <laughs> which i had never heard until that oh really yeah, <laughs> I must be a uneducated plebeian. I I don't know if I'd heard that before, but like I understood what he meant. Oh, yeah. of course, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he portrays that feeling very vividly, to the point where it's disorienting to the reader because you're not sure what exactly is going on, because it seems like all the kid does is just like stand up and say something, and then his arms are like pinned behind his back, and people think he's having a seizure. <laughs> And yeah he's wheeled out on a gurney and yeah i i, I reread it 
yeah, I read it twice and um, it's still kind of disorienting the second time what, mm. where, where exactly things turn and, and become crazy. Yeah, yeah, that it's, uh, that it's narrated from his internal perspective mm-hmm. where his reality is having said eloquent phrases at these people mm-hmm. uh, and whereas their reality is what was the word wobbling waggling i believe waggling, waggling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. ungodly noises like uh like a goat with something stabbing it in the eye yeah. i think it said <laughs> <laughs> mm. yeah and and to me that feels like something that uh probably a lot of people can relate to and i know i i can as well yeah i think i mean i think that's pretty universal language language is imperfect but um Mm. oh interesting yeah getting back into the uh terence mckenna uh understanding of language where uh all words are abstractions from the truth and can never perfectly represent the truth yeah i mean you could it's like you could imagine a language that's so precise that you could say certain words and people would literally see a different color but theoretically but we don't have that language obviously and and even explaining things like emotions or or thoughts is very hit or miss as to whether people are actually gonna understand what you mean Mm. Could you elaborate? I'm not sure I understand your idea of this hypothetical language. Uh, this is something I saw in a Vsauce video, but like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even know what it would be. I mean, uh, I mean, the surefire thing it could be is like, you know, if Neuralink works out and you're able to wire numbers to someone's brain to have them perceive red. Is that is that that much different than a, a language that's being spoken? It's still information. Wow, <laughs> I mean that that's really a, a strange concept to me, and I'm I'm not sure I understand if that's like has has that been done? No, but it's it's only a matter of time. <laughs> Are you sure? Oh yeah, I mean I mean like. I mean, it could be like a hundred years before any of that works, but already, I mean, people have ocular implants that are letting them see light and darkness. Hmm. And it's not out of the question that um, we could directly stimulate the part of the brain that sees color in a way that you would see red. Interesting. So does this does this kind of uh, disprove the the long asked question it like do we all see red the same way or is like one person's mm, red actually no. like another person's turquoise because all, all you can really all you can really say is you're stimulating the same part of the brain and the person's actual experience you know we don't actually know if it's the same but at that at that point it's mm. like if the brain anatomy is exactly the same and you're stimulating the same part you kind of have to be um little crazy to think that it's not producing the same phenomenon in someone else's awareness hmm interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah an, an actual language with words that you would speak that would do that is 
it's hard to imagine what that would actually look like but 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 that would imply uh, a similarity of structure from one person to another uh the the context with uh around which that particular stimulation activity occurs right um which is maybe not such a far-fetched thing i mean we are in many ways very similar but uh, isn't it conceivable that a mind could create uh, different forms and different structures um, to ha so that when you have a particular stimulus, even if it's the same stimulus, it interacts with the system as a whole in a completely different way. Yeah, yeah, that that could be that could definitely be true. I mean, there there are like literally billions of moving parts, <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> It would make sense that a lot of us sort of develop similar patterns uh, and structures to help us understand the world, but it seems to me entirely possible for different people to develop different strategies that both that, that all work in ways to to understand the world, and and uh, so like you can get by with these different structures in your mind but that each one is entirely unique. Yeah, you mean unique unique as between like the structures themselves are unique as as compared to other people other people's structures in their heads. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I see the distinction. Yeah. I mean, everyone could be walking around with a bunch of structures in their head that are distinct, but all the structures are the same to each other from person to person. But I, I don't think that's, hmm. I don't think that's what actually exists. Interesting. Uh, I, uh, as a child, occasionally I would have this thought mm -hmm. of what if my entire existence here is uh, a fabrication made by my parents who are actually, they're actually really rich and I'm actually uh, mentally deficient. Um, I am a uh, unintelligent blob and they are paying a lot of money to have these people around me act as though I am a normal person and interact with me as though I uh, am not, in fact, a Cretan. So w what age did you entertain that idea at? I must have been... Actually, I must have been 13 or 14. Yeah. Yeah, maybe 15. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I had like, <laughs> I had some kind of theories like that about, like about my parents. It was it was more like, like I thought there was something that people just weren't telling me, like adults weren't telling me about the way the world works, which is <laughs> which is true. But I thought you know I thought it was like oh we actually maybe we actually know what happens when you die and they aren't just aren't telling me because like <laughs> it's you know <laughs> like that kind of yeah. stuff. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> um, hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have that hmm. thought about, I have that thought about like, 
in just like social situations like oh everyone's just being nice to me even though you know like i'm really awkward and like i say the wrong shit like that kind of stuff yeah uh-huh. <laughs> um, but i think that's everyone but that's that's interesting too especially that you brought up like the uh like your parents maybe have some uh vision into like uh i don't know the metaphysical <laughs> questions that plague humanity um i have had an experience um that same time that uh we did acid together um, <laughs> the the two tabs of acid yeah um this was this was at the time where i went with aiden and just kind of fucked off and disappeared yeah <laughs> did you go to jp the, the show uh uh-huh. yeah. yeah we went we went to the show at the black box yeah. theater and um really extraordinary and moving and insightful and powerful and erotic um performance um, <laughs> oh yeah there, there but, were like dancers and stuff right yes yeah. there were yeah uh and um there were comical moments as well and the whole audience was laughing and i was laughing with the audience and jim simmons next to me was laughing uproariously and it was so funny and then i realized oh all all of these people all of these entities here with me are extra dimensional beings they're uh four four spatial dimensional beings who have transcended this plane and who all see me uh me this uh three-dimensional ape um toying with these psychedelics that are allowing me to glance into their plane of existence and it's so endearing and pathetic and comical that they're all laughing at me (laughs) i had the the distinct feeling that all of these people are laughing at me but in such a good nature i mean did you think they knew you were on acid Interesting. I'm still not sure I get exactly what you mean. <laughs> Wait, so the, the the people who's who's sensing you, your approach? Is it the, the it's the extra the extra dimensional projections of the people that you're sitting around? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's the distinction is that the the people around me, they weren't confined by their bodies or anything. They were just mm-hmm. representations of these extra dimensional entities. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> and so, and so how, how does that relate to the laughing again? Like, what was oh, well, they were laughing. They were all laughing at me. Like, that's what the laughter was about. Was they saw me uh, ditzing around, and it was so comical that they were all brought to laughter. But they were laughing at the show in reality, right? were they though (laughs) I mean (laughs) 
<laughs> That's why I was confused. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was too confused. You were confused. <laughs> yeah. So, is there any like insight you can give me into the first chapter without spoiling the rest of the book? <laughs> yeah. Um,. Yeah. <laughs> I'll hold my tongue on that one. Um, <laughs> there's, there's definitely a huge, huge ass spoiler that I can tell you right now, but I, I don't. Won't. <laughs> um, well, one, one little thing that won't, it won't really be a spoiler is, um, well, the, the next chapter will be like a, a flashback to a year previously. Mm-hmm. Um, at which point you'll find out that Hal is an entirely normal and well-adjusted individual mm-hmm. with no trouble communicating at all. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, th- and then he mentions, like, something about if I'd written this essay a year ago, it would have looked like an infant, like, mashing a keyboard. Yeah. Is that, is he has, like, some accident or some kind of, like, temporary... Spoiler. <laughs> 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 yeah, I was wondering if there was mm. something there. I was uh thoroughly disoriented by that first chapter. The first time I tried to read Infinite Jest where I got maybe about a fifth of the way through, I could not catch the tone. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean I mean I immediately like after like the first page I felt like I'd never read anything exactly like that, someone writing exactly like that. And it was such a specific, mm. specific tone that I could see. I could definitely see that. Yeah, so um, you know, Trevor, that I have recently moved uh, into the state mm-hmm. of Massachusetts where I've uh, spent some passing time in Boston. Um, reading, reading this book uh, really illuminated my understanding of the culture of Boston and the, and, the, and the mindset of the uh, New England upper and lower class citizens. Interesting. Yeah, I remember uh, our friend Aiden from CU Boulder. Uh, I remember him telling me after he'd read it, read it that um, it made him appreciate what it was like to be an American or like appreciate just, uh, I don't know if appreciate is the right, the right word, but like, it's a pretty clear he said it was a pretty clear picture of like american <laughs> i guess like white american culture yeah and perhaps the disparity with uh what uh black american americans experience yeah mm-hmm. well you were you were talking about uh <laughs> sorry you just didn't you just say that the first we were just talking about how the first chapter is about not being understood and not being able to communicate um what
yeah, I, yeah I, it's interesting to think about why he, he brings in that like anecdote in the middle about when he was a kid and he tried to eat the moss and his, <laughs> um, and his mom was just like running around screaming and and, uh, and I feel like that's I mean it must be must be related to the not being able to communicate things somehow because he he was just so obviously wrong about what the, the moss was and like what it would do. <laughs> Interesting. And I, I've read some I've read some theories about what that particular uh flashback was about, but yeah. um nothing I'm gonna say yeah. as of yet. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this idea of um the disparity between your experience and um the quote unquote objective experience of of what's really happening. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you, you had mentioned that, um, you, you, th- this experience of not being able to express yourself is, uh, universal, um, uh, that you, everyone has it, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you can never a hundred percent get across what you mean to get across. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah. um, what's interesting to me about that is that it's, uh, seems to be a law of nature more than anything right it's like speaks to the fact that our experiences as conscious entities are unique um but also subjective and don't always align in the same way yeah it's interesting to try to think about like a counterexample for that and i don't think you really could yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, actually, this is something uh, that I've kind of been thinking about in relation to the, like, the the life is just a loop thing. Um, what, what does it mean for, for two things to be exactly the same mm. in the universe if they're separated by time? Mm. <laughs> like, if there are, if there are two, two, like, experiences, two, you know, two beings that exist and are exactly the same um and they exist at two different times in the universe is that one experience or is it two experiences wow. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah um yeah i've actually thought about that as well um and uh in the context of uh to get a little uh pseudoscience although not to say that I uh, endorse or believe this perspective, but just an interesting thought that I have encountered is um, the idea of uh, communing with one's past lives, um, mm-hmm. you know, which you have to accept uh, the idea of reincarnation in some form or another, which uh, is debatable, mm-hmm. but. Um, but th- that maybe the this experience that people have of communing with their past lives is um, some sort of uh, connection between those moments that are identical in certain regards. Interesting. What what kind of things do do people have? How how do people feel like they have connections? Is it like they they have certain memories they can't explain, or like yeah, they have they yeah, remember exactly. certain things that they 
Um, and so what if um, there are certain prominent parts of your personality that form an identity that are identical somewhere else in history? And if so, if they are identical enough that maybe they are, as you were saying, part of the same experience. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of, like, we don't we don't really know if there are islands of consciousness in our, in our brain that are that are separate from us, right? <laughs> that we're completely sealed off from. <laughs> I feel like there's gotta be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Hmm. Or at least there's a disparity between our perceived sense of selves and the entirety of ourselves. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think something like reincarnation exists? Um, the 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 part of it that uh resonates with me is this um concept of similitude where you have um recurring uh recurring themes i guess um in different points in history just like i was uh kind of just mentioning um mm-hmm. and that um these uh themes are representations of the same entity um in in sort of the same uh, or a similar concept to the jungian archetypes interesting yeah where there's like these uh entities or concepts that emerge repeatedly um in human psyche and so that's what's actually getting reincarnated and the fact that we're just seeing like discrete individual people pop up is just kind of a uh an artifact (laughs) 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 or that that it seems like there's distinct consciousnesses that are that are like tied to people's skulls yeah that's interesting um and, and it's funny that you should mention that because um, I've also had an experience, um, this also on psychedelics, <laughs> of um, the, it, it seemed to me as though I could see the consciousness. Uh, I could see it when it was within individuals, but I, uh, I went over to uh, the next door uh, where some of, some of my family members were having dinner and sat down and Mm -hmm. was just listening to the conversation um and as these people were conversing around me i could see the consciousness where 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 the consciousness was was not rooted inside the skulls of the people it was this like Mm -hmm. wave that would uh emerge out of the air in between the people and would sort of form its own life so that the actual consciousness existed in this uh only in the space of the two people interacting and not necessarily in either of the agents huh that's that's a cool idea yeah do you, but we, I mean, we do have to ask the question whether psychedelics are showing us anything that's true mm. about reality or whether it's just turning some dials in our brain that makes us... I mean, I, I think it, it definitely 
psychedelics definitely do tell us something about our brain. I don't know if it if they can really tell us anything about like the fundamental nature of reality or anything like that mm. or how how I mean I I it can, they can show us that consciousness is like um uh they can show you that there's no uh uh like subject object distinction, right? They can Sure. destroy that barrier, mm. but as far as like showing you anything like metaphysical beyond that. I don't yeah, know that's an interesting, <laughs> you can really that's trust an interesting point because <laughs> even as you're taking the psychedelic, you're still not uh, separating yourself from the experience of, of the flesh and bones body. And, and, and so by, do, by not doing that, uh, it's not uh, granting you a perspective of anything beyond what's limited to that experience yeah yeah although i mean when you like i i would say the ex the exception is probably dmt because that's produced in our brain and obviously has something very very significant to do with how our brain works hmm. <laughs> and that's that's the one that's the one drug that i would i would guess maybe does have something to show us as far as like the fundamental nature of of consciousness and that kind of thing. Interesting. I've but never, I've really never know. taken DMT myself. <laughs> yeah, I haven't either. Um, but so, so here to contradict myself now, the, uh, the thing about psychedelics though is, uh, and any psychedelic really is, it's kind of like taking a step towards, um, separating yourself from the experience of your flesh and bones body. Totally. And yeah. in that, I think we can derive a lot of value and understanding. Yeah, it can demonstrate that you shouldn't really be, like, blaming yourself for all your problems as much as you are. Not to mean, the, you know, you're, you shouldn't fix them, but... What like... are you talking about? All my problems are other people's fault. <laughs> 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 if, it, if it weren't for my damn it parents. is yeah it is interesting though like i um uh i've been using this this meditation app that um was created by sam harris who's mm. uh has this other podcast and um but he uh yeah has like years and years of experience in in meditation and he has these uh on the app there's these conversations you can listen to with um you know with people who are like you know uh think about mindfulness and meditation for a living and and also people who have uh you know done research on psychedelics and um he's talking to this one uh researcher from france and um and they were talking about and she was talking very specifically about how like um when you take something like acid you should you should go into it with like a uh some question you have or some mm. like some kind of uh goal like therapeutic goal, which I thought, I thought, I mean, and you know, mm. she was talking from like a therapeutic perspective, yeah, but the um, same idea from uh, Michael Pollan's how to change your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because, because the first time I took it, I had, <laughs> I had no idea that was like one of the things and, and pretty much what did happen is like I, I started thinking kind of intensely about like the stuff in my life and like what was happening and like um mm. and I think that just started like really disorient me and um 
in that sense, it does, it can show you something kind of true about, about yourself, like about your own psyche. Hmm. Like, I think that's, that's kind of where it's, it's useful is, is, uh, if not, if not showing you something fundamental about reality, it's showing you how your mind works and showing you mm. what it's capable of. Absolutely. And that maybe yeah. there is some sliver of reality within your mind. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, okay. So this, this starts to get into um, the idea of, are you in a simulation? Which... Yeah. Uh, uh, popularized by Elon Elon Musk, but has existed since before he started talking about it. Um, oh, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you, <laughs> it's been around yeah, for a long you, time. Would you talk about this idea? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, simulation argument is basically that there's a certain number of technological civilizations that will arise in our galaxy, and we have to assume when they get to a certain point in their technology that they'll be able to create perfect ancestor simulations of their past, uh, their past ancestors and that those simulations would be completely conscious and to be one of those simulated beings would be indistinguishable from being in quote unquote base reality, you know, that's not simulated. Um, and you can also imagine that, every such civilization would probably create more than one simulation if they could. Right. So, uh, however many simulations you think they would create, uh, it makes it that much more likely that we're in a simulation <laughs> and not base reality because there, there would be naturally be so many more simulated realities than base mm. reality. But, uh, the, the, yeah, absolutely. And the, the key for me, what you just said is that to be, in such a simulation is indistinguishable from uh, being a, a conscious entity anywhere else. I mean, it's still, mm -hmm. even it, as an, a simulation, it's an expression of consciousness. And mm -hmm. at least from my understanding of how the world works, it is the experience of consciousness that imbues anything with meaning. And is therefore mm -hmm. the uh, the the goal. It's it's the the value uh, of anything. No, I agree. Yeah, I mean, even even if yeah, even if we are in a simulation, that doesn't. Uh, yeah, that doesn't mean that our consciousness is any less important. Mm. Because that's really the only thing we know for sure is that something is happening. Yeah, that's what matters, right? <laughs> we could we could be wrong about what is happening, but that something is happening is it can't be not true. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Um, if you're in base reality, are you like 100% certain that every experience you have is the actual experience? <laughs> what do you mean by that? like okay in our, in our reality um nothing is perfect right uh words are abstract abstractions from the meaning and uh everyone's mm -hmm. experience is slightly misaligned from the objective reality that everyone around them experiences right but mm -hmm. so what if in base reality that's not true 
in base reality that's the world where everything is perfectly aligned and everyone just knows the truth all the time <laughs> it's possible yeah I mean, it's interesting to i mean because literally like the laws of physics could be different in the next level up we wouldn't know i mean like you would if it is something like an ancestor simulation i guess you would you would think that it would be the same laws of physics that people are simulating but we don't know that either. yeah <laughs> <laughs> but so then as the the closer you get to your experience of reality aligning with the objective reality of existence around you the higher uh lower down in the chain you get towards base reality <laughs> Wait, say <that> again. <laughs> so, so the the closer your subjective reality lines up with the objective reality around you the closer you are to base reality uh I don't know if that would necessarily be true. Hmm. Um, Cause it's not like, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be like, uh, it wouldn't have to be a game of telephone where everyone's like simulating something slightly different than before. <laughs> it could just be totally random as to what people are simulating, or it could be like, always be the hmm. same. I guess, I guess if it was, if people try to make it always, you know, copy exactly the base reality, it would start to get a little bit, hmm off after a few yeah but if you had that kind of processing power is that what you'd do or would you explore variations of experience and make new realities yeah i mean personally i think that's a pretty good answer to the fermi paradox is that anyone who invents technology that's uh advanced enough to travel through space can also invent perfect virtual reality that's basically <laughs> heaven and why would anyone want to leave mm. that and and you know and and having that technology also means you can basically you know know everything about the universe you'd want to know without having to leave and you know trying to colonize space mm. um is i, I think it's interesting is is there a, a fitness problem that we encounter then in in terms of if if you were to consider all of these distinct civilizations as competitors um evolving mm -hmm. simultaneously in the in the uh primordial soup of our existence that um mm -hmm. at some of these variations there's maybe going to be uh more aggressive um conquest type ones who might go yeah. and uh, attack the people who have spent all their resources in making their own little heroin dream heaven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, it would be, it would be like a post AGI kind of utopia where like no one has to work and, uh, basically everything is every, all, everyone's needs are taken care of. And, mm. um, Basically, there's not much left to do other than just, you know, uh, experience beauty and, and you know, have relationships and... Lots of sex. Do all the fun, fun human <laughs> stuff. Virtual sex, you know. <laughs> mm. Can you imagine, if, you know, if you were... 
Oh, every night. If you're in virtual every reality, you can imagine. No, you you can have you can have sex with like 100 people at once, like you know, the, that experience, whatever that means. You can have, <laughs> <laughs> have, have sex with someone and all of their past lives at the same time. <laughs> Suppose what I project will be seen as a smile. I turn this way and that, slightly, sort of directing the expression to everyone in the room. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> Me at every college party I went to. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but that raises a question. Aren't there people who don't have this sort of experience? Like, well-adjusted, normal, confident people who don't have any second-guessing of, of their own expression. Yeah, I mean, I feel like <laughs> there's a certain intelligence cutoff for that because at a certain point, someone's going to be smart enough to to start, you know, uh, like being concerned with the way they're being perceived. I feel like that's just kind of like a, like a basic like mm. trait of, of like, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like the smarter you get, the the more likely that is to happen. Although some people are, some people are, are smart and they're so gifted socially that they don't have to care because they just naturally do whatever is the right thing to do. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I definitely think there is a tendency for smart people to uh, get wrapped up in their own heads and uh, start having experience of second guessing and stuff. But I feel like that's more just a product of how smartness manifests in our current culture as opposed to uh, a fundamental aspect of like that's the smart thing to do interesting say, say more about that like yeah like wouldn't it be more smart as you were saying just to um recognize that that was a possibility and to choose not to get wrapped up in all that bullshit and just to have fun and express yourself 
however you want. Yeah, I mean, that's great. But then you have to think about, I mean, if you're in a, a position like a, a job or, you know, you're in school, like you have to you have to think about like the the political consequences for the back, lack of a better word about what you're what you're saying and how people are going to take it and what people are going to think of you and you know in most in in 95 percent of situations it doesn't really matter at all but you never really know mm. when the five percent of the situations that matter are going to happen so yeah and okay yeah but and, and, yeah totally and so that means that it's uh, a product of the social environment that we uh have created for ourselves as opposed to uh of actually being smart mm -hmm. yeah i mean yeah it's i mean so, I, something like that social environment has existed as long as i mean it exists in animal like societies like you know like um mm. with like you know gorillas where it's there's a clear ranking of the alpha male and then everyone is kind of um you know below him um that kind of stuff <laughs> the term is big daddy <laughs> um a friend of mine said something that i thought was really beautiful um which was that saints and poets don't have restraint they only have exuberance that's interesting huh yeah and particularly the saint part of that um it's fascinating to me it made me think of alyosha in the brothers karamazov mm -hmm. by dotsievsky uh, i don't know if you're i have heard the name one. a bunch of times but i huh. read it We'll we'll definitely have to uh, do yeah, that as yeah. a future episode. Yeah, uh, really yeah. incredible piece of work. But there's this character um, who is really kind of saintly. He's just this caring individual, very intelligent and perceptive and caring, and he just does what's in his heart in his heart all the time, and people love him, and the world is better mm -hmm. for his experience. That's a nice idea. <laughs> <laughs> and it isn't, isn't that if your goal is to exist and to flourish mm -hmm. on this earth, isn't that the smart thing to do? To live yeah. Like but, uh, how can you be sure that that's actually how you're living? <laughs> that you're not just deceiving yourself, that that's that you're only having positive effects. <laughs> <laughs> well uh interesting but yeah i like if you were to I, f I feel like if you were to talk to alyosha in the book he would say nothing of the sort uh if you were to say he was a saint he would say gosh no i'm just i'm just a person i'm doing the best that i can i'm mm -hmm. as flawed as anyone so uh, in continuing our conversation from a moment ago about um, people who 
uh, get wrapped up in their head and that being intelligence and people who uh, act intentionally to not get wrapped up in their heads mm-hmm. um, isn't that kind of the difference between um, people who think they're smart and people who are smart <laughs> <laughs> yeah, similar, similar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like the Dunning Kruger effect. I've heard that, but can you remind me what that is? So it's like uh, when you first start doing a thing, like learning how to, you know, play drums or something. At first, you're not good enough to know how bad you are, so you think you're doing pretty well, and then yeah. <laughs> so you you overrate your your confidence based on uh, the fact that you're not very good at it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which actually that ties in with uh, a later theme in Infinite Jest of he speaks about irony and that in a in the postmodern world it's just saturated with irony and people you know who think they understand things and they're uh, they see the way everything is fucked up and mm-hmm. they are so overcome by this that the only response is the ironic uh, that it's sort of a, a an agony even to be drawn to the point of of irony mm-hmm. and that the only way out of that loop is to be the credulous fool who acts intentionally um, and and follows their own? No, I I think I think I I'd heard him talk about that kind of thing. There was like one of those PBS blank on blank YouTube videos, or like mm. um, just some some YouTube video with clips of him talking. But he was it was he was talking about how it was like something to do with sincerity and like how people have mm. to cloak everything under all this irony now and and yeah, we've kind absolutely. of lost we've lost touch with what, what it means to just be sincere and and like you were saying to follow follow your yeah yeah exactly yeah, and, and to and to not be afraid and even to go forward and even knowing that people are going to laugh at you yeah for doing that and for mm-hmm. being sincere yeah actually you know what this this reminds me of a little bit um mm-hmm. did you ever read that book uh confederacy of dunces no i've heard of it the, the way the the writing is where it's it's kind of disorienting the way you know different characters cut in and out and everything the way everything is described is kind of like really detailed and grotesque Mm. and (laughs) like that whole thing um that's really interesting and actually those qualities that you just mentioned are kind of uh i feel like they're the spirit of of consciousness in boston and in in the new england area it's this very heady, intellectual, wrapped up, uh, just like it's it's embedded in the way people speak. All these conditionals that are baked into the way people talk, and and but so and for. <laughs> In- interesting. I don't know if I know exactly what you mean. Um. Yeah, it, it it's an it, it's a very particular. Uh, and subtle thing that uh, you might not notice at first um, just speaking to someone in the New England area or uh, or passing through, but 
um, if you're here for a little while, it for, for me, it really started to jump out, especially coming from Colorado where people speak, uh, I think, much more clearly and directly. Uh-huh. Um, but in Boston and the New England area, you're much more likely to get these long winding sentences where the subject occurs much later in the sentence and you have to follow along uh, all the way in, until then for the thing to make sense. Yeah. It's <laughs> interesting. And um, there's a kind of a proliferation of syllables, as it were. <laughs> what, do, what do you mean by that? There, there is a, there is a, a, a sign down by the dock that I, I saw, and I thought that is, that is exactly what New England is, and it said, um, "Use of dinghy dock is at your own risk." <laughs> the sign said. Now, if this sign were in Colorado, it would say, "Use dock at own risk." <laughs> but in Massachusetts, the sign is. Use of dinghy dock is at your own risk. <laughs> it's it's kind of like uh, it's like word, words like ain't and y'all actually make language way more efficient than it would be otherwise. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Have you noticed like what's like the West Coast like compared to that? The West Coast is much more measured, kind of in line with uh, Colorado. Um, another element of the energy that I've noticed is on the East Coast, people are much more likely to interrupt. Um, mm -hmm. There's not so much space in conversation. Um, people are jumping in to get their own word in, speaking over other people, and that this is sort of encouraged and expected of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, every time I've been over there, everyone's just, like, trying to get somewhere as fast as they can. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Yeah. It's so crowded, and there's a, a mentality that in order for me to get by, I have to shut everyone else out. I'm the only person who exists who really matters, mm -hmm. and everyone else, they're just noise in the background, mm -hmm. which I think is a, a pretty alienating way to live. Maybe I can find an example of this New England uh, language in here. So this is just like uh, an essay title. Mm -hmm. Why, though in the early days of interlaces, internetted telepeters that operated off largely the same fiber digital grid as the phone companies, the advent of video telephoning, aka videophony, enjoyed an interval of huge consumer popularity. Callers thrilled at the idea of phone interfacing both orally and facially, the little first-generation phone video cameras being too crude and narrow-apertured for anything much more than facial close-ups, on first-generation telepeters that, at the time, were little more than high-tech TV sets, though of course they had that little intelligent agent homuncular icon that would appear at the lower right of the broadcast cable program and tell you the time and temperature outside, or remind you to take your blood pressure medication or alert you to a particularly compelling entertainment option now coming up on channel like 491 or something, comma, or, of course, now alerting you to an incoming video phone call and then tap dancing with a little iconic straw boater and cane just under a menu of possible options for response. And callers did love their little homuncular icons. But 
why within like 16 months or five sales quarters, the tumescent demand curve for videophony suddenly collapsed like a kicked tent, so that by the year of the depend adult undergarment, fewer than 10% of all private telephone communications utilized any video image fiber data transfers or coincident products and services, the average US phone user deciding that C S slash E actually preferred the retrograde old low-tech Bellera voice-only telephonic interface after all, a preferential about-face that cost a good many precipitant video telephony-related entrepreneurs their shirts, plus destabilizing two highly respected mutual funds that had ground-floored heavily in video phone technology and very nearly wiping out the Maryland State Employees Retirement System Freddie Mac Fund, a fund whose administrator's mistress's brother had been an almost maniacally precipitant video phone technology entrepreneur, and but so why the abrupt consumer retreat back to good old voice only telephoning? <laughs> Spectacular. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's that's remarkable. And 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 at the same time, it's a great example of uh, obviously exaggerated. Uh, the forms of speaking that happen within uh, New England uh, conversation um, where there's mm -hmm. these sort of uh, set, uh, concept smudged in after concept with no spacing or uh, regard for, for balance um, and overlapping mm. each other and interposed upon each other. That wasn't literally oh, yes, all one was. sentence what you just read, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was all one sentence. <laughs> and that, that's not where he stops. There's a, there's a monologue somewhere in here that's a whole chapter that's one sentence. I guess one thing I wanted to ask you is like the the like does the theme of like academic like uh or like che academic cheating that kind of thing does that does that get like further developed or um in some regards i i remember there's a couple scenes relating to it mm -hmm. uh what do you ask i'm just curious like i mean i guess i'll i'll find it as i keep reading it but um yeah whether whether the 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 setting is just kind of like if there are any issues that are specific to like academic stuff or if it's just kind of like a springboard for, for other. No, it definitely, uh, I, I think it explores the uh, dichotomy between the academic experience and the uh, uh, uneducated experience. Um, I guess uneducated is kind mm -hmm. of a pretentious way to phrase that. Um, <laughs> those, those lacking in the... <laughs> privilege of education somehow that sounds even more pretentious <laughs> street bums <laughs> plebs <laughs> Yeah, I think the most fascinating part of this chapter for me was just the, like we were talking about, the disconnect between his inner monologue and what's actually happening mm. on the outside. Um, just 
the fact that his inner monologue is so articulate and just he seems to know very lucidly and exactly what is happening to him but he can't really do anything mm. about it <laughs> makes you think of uh coma victims or coma patients i guess yeah yeah but i mean aren't we all like are we that? all like that <laughs> uh <laughs> I, know. I mean if if you if if you think free will doesn't exist then yes <laughs> <laughs> Wait, if if I think that free will does not exist, then we are all unable to communicate our inner experiences? No, it's more that we can understand what's happening to us and we can articulate what's happening to us, but as far as actually changing the direction of what's happening, oh. we can't really do that. I mean, we can we can... We can change the direction, but we can't change the changing of the direction. Whoa. <laughs> Mind blown. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, are, so you're not on board with free will not existing? No, I'm not. Okay. Uh, we should we should do a whole episode Absolutely. of that, <laughs> but um, okay. Well, do do you accept that um, either a we're living in a deterministic universe, or b that there's some kind of quantum uncertainty involved that is uh, not deterministic but probabilistic? Sure, like, absolutely. One of those two things. Okay, so if it's completely deterministic, then everything uh, is going to happen the way it's going to happen, no matter what and uh there's no room for free will right mm. <laughs> even if it's random uh th- then that would it would just be that you you think you're having the illusion that it's your choice but it's actually just a random quantum event that's creating what you perceive as your, as your mm. choice um and if you and if you pay attention uh like if you're meditating or, or something and you pay attention to like uh, how thoughts arise in your head, uh, you can notice that like you're not thinking them. They're just kind of appearing because you can't you can't think a thought before you think it. Right. It just mm. you can't decide to have a thought. I mean, you can you can think you can like have thoughts that progress and like add on to each other. Um, but when a thought itself arises, you can't make it arise. It just, you know, it just appears. And, uh, if you notice that that's not under your control, then what is under your control? Because everything, all your actions and, um, and all your beliefs and stuff come from those thoughts. Interesting. Um, to me, that comes down again to the, the idea of the dissolution of, mint of the self and of uh certainly if you're defining yourself as an entity that is separate or limited to uh, a particular subset of reality that um in so limiting yourself you are cutting off uh any sort of free will that you might have in, in in those regards uh, yeah, but it does it does connect definitely to the to the, the dissolution of the self because uh, it's 
it's part of the same insight that you're continuous with the universe and you're inextricably connected mm. to it and there's not really a, a a discernible starting point or ending point for where where your actions become your own yeah 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 and and so like and then what if you are rather than you are the entity that you think you are what if what you really are is those impulses that are arising as if spontaneously and if you are those things then you have the the freedom to either be or not to be i feel like <laughs> that well what is what does that I, mean <laughs> I, I, I guess I don't really have a way to back this up, but it feels to me as though um, one of the most uh, central qualities of existing in any in any capacity is the ability to not exist. You know, you can engage with your reality or you can disengage. Um, and in any mm -hmm. given moment, any impulse, any mote of perception that says I am can say, but I don't want to be, you know, it's, mm -hmm. you, you are, and you are, and you are until you're not. And in a certain sense, you have to kind of see that as a decision. I'm not sure what you're talking about besides like. You're not talking about like committing suicide. No, I'm, I'm speaking on a more uh, diffuse level um, as opposed to uh, as individuals um, more um, if, if you would consider each human individual as uh, a colony or conglomeration of individual points of perception where each um, each awareness um, is its own entity that co uh, connects with the greater whole that forms the uh, identity of yourself. That each of those points has its own ability to either exist or not exist. How? It, it has to be that way if that existence occurs in eternity as opposed to over time because how else would there be anything apart from that eternity that that particular entity is experiencing uh you lost me somewhere <laughs> <in there. laughs> okay yeah this is this is a, a a weird idea i guess um <laughs> so you're, you're saying there's like individual parts that make us up and those each on their own can choose to not exist or exactly exist. and in so doing they they can form a sort of binary code of existing and not existing that uh, forms our actions and our decisions. Yeah, I mean, it, like, that could all be true. I don't think that that proves that there's free will. Oh, it's will. definitely not a proof. I have, I have no conclusive yeah. evidence. But it uh, <laughs> seems to me every bit as plausible as the opposite uh, of there being no free will. Yeah. 
So do you think, uh, so like when people talk about free will, there's, there's one camp that's, um, uh, no free will. And then there's another camp that's, um, there's two camps that believe in free will. And one is compatibilism, which is like, basically we don't have what people think of as free will classically, but we have something that's kind of something kind of like that, even though it's very, very Mm -hmm. limited. And then there's libertarian free will, which is basically just uh, what most people would think of as free will. Like you can do whatever you want. You can make your own decisions. And This is um, America. So. (laughs) Do what I want. (laughs) Uh, You believe in freedom. (laughs) Freedom of will. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm de- I'm definitely more in the first camp. Um I think there are uh always limitations to our experience, but at the same time there's always um always a little a little or a lot of wiggle room. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we we should do a whole episode on that cuz it it uh like even if you accept that it doesn't exist, then you have to worry about like how it affects more moral responsibility for things. Yeah, of course. Um, because it, it, to some extent, you you need to still punish people somehow. <clears throat> You've been a naughty for, boy. You, know. <laughs> <laughs> you deserve this. Yeah, because some people need to be punished. Yes. I might, if you'd like, uh, like to talk about something from one of my journals. Sure. Um, actually going on to this idea of disillusionment of self. Okay. Um, so it's titled, how can I know that my life isn't more valuable than anyone else's? The being I refer to as I is a conglomeration of points of existence, perceptions arranged in a complex structure, all connected by way of existing in a shared space simultaneously. Though I am accustomed to thinking of myself as an individual, it is equally true that I am a culture of beings existing amid the intricate structure of my mind all banding together more or less to increase the safety of our existence and our ability to grow. As each point of perception within me is continuously endeavoring to exist, each one has value to itself. I am comprised wholly of these. In order to exist as the individual that I am accustomed to seeing myself as, and to declaim that my existence has value, I must recognize the value of every single one of these points of existence. I must also recognize that other humans and all other beings are comprised the same way. Therefore, they must have the same inherent value as me. Interesting. So you're 
kind of saying that everyone has a similar structure to their mind or to their um well the the actual forms of the structure could vary but the building blocks are all the same yeah i I think i agree with that cool i mean if we're if yeah i mean if if we're all all our minds come from the same kind of brain architecture well uh but that it's not the brain architecture that is the uh fundamental unit but rather it is the the uh the notion the ideological notion of perception it is the the thing that is perceiving yeah well, i mean I, I i wouldn't say that there there's no thing that's perceiving there's just perception is the is the Hmm. like the bottom but line of existence but you could also see it i mean that's that's an entirely valid way to understand the world but um you could also uh see within uh a, a, let's say for example one particular person's brain there are so many different uh neurons and whatever and there there are so many very different specialized uh, uh, neurons that are only looking for one thing in particular. Um, I was reading about this mm -hmm. in Ray Kurzweil's How to Create a Mind, um, mm -hmm. where he talks about how perception happens. And like in his example, he's exploring how to create um, uh, text reading software that can read handwritten text. And uh, mm -hmm. he has many different uh, little neurons. Each one is looking for something very particular. For example, uh, one of them is only looking for the crossbar of an A. Maybe another one mm -hmm. is only looking for some diagonal slant, or it's only looking for a circle. And mm -hmm. if it sees that, it fires off. And um, when that... Uh, Com combines with other neurons that are specialized to perceive other elements of reality, then it forms uh, a concept of uh, of the word or or of whatever it's perceiving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I don't know if this is. Uh like current but I, I think one of the theories about consciousness is that it's just the brain representing things in some way um kind of kind of like you were describing um where if that because if if that if that neuron fires because it sees the little crossbar in the a it's representing that crossbar of the a in some kind of code inside your yeah, head absolutely right and that then that representation might be what what we're perceiving mm. Or I mean, it, it would it has to be right. We're not actually perceiving the the, the object yeah. itself. We're just perceiving of the, course. the yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what's so fascinating because, um, as you know, the neurons inside your brain are connected to what other neurons, right? And so that that neuron that's looking for the crossbar of the A is the only put input that it has is other neurons within the brain which are in turn mm -hmm. connected through uh, a long series to uh, the 
uh, ocular nerve which is receiving light as the input source um, mm -hmm. but it's it's able to parse that data in such a way that with reasonable certainty it can say this neuron I want you only to look for the crossbar of the A yeah it's, pre it's pretty amazing that that our brain can do that I mean it has it has to be some some constellation of like really minute things like that mm -hmm. right but it's still just kind of mind-boggling it is and uh and this structure is uh i think the same basis uh that machine learning is being built around yeah yeah like i mean neural networks are, are basically modeled on individual components that act like a neuron yeah, exactly It's interesting because you can have the conversation about how, you know, oh, no one can ever know anyone else's experience exactly. But, you know, from an alien's perspective, like our bodies are so fucking similar to each other. Like, it's just little, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like these little like minute changes mm. that like, because I mean, uh, obviously there's a huge range of human experience, right? But that's a very small spectrum on the vast possible range of experiences, right? That any mm. being could have. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You're saying that maybe um, we're more alike than we are different. Yeah. I mean, we just have nothing to compare, c compare consciousness to, cause we only have the one, one species that we can communicate with and, and talk about what it's like. Um, but, if you take a bigger perspective, it seems like in the end, we're all probably having pretty similar experiences and to another, for like an actually outside alien perspective, it would, it would seem almost exactly identical. Yeah. But then in the grand scheme of things, maybe we're more like the alien on a base level than, uh, than not. <laughs> I don't know. What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> well, maybe just that we're all all comprised of the same same units of perception, and that that's uh, fundamental to existing. Yeah, you're right. It, it could be that we that we well, when we finally make contact, it's it turns out that they're only consciousness is pretty constricted in how it can actually operate by how it perceives. Hmm. Um, but yeah in any experience of the world you have to have yeah. a slice of the infinite and a slice of the finite <laughs> yeah and actually they're they're already like uh able to give people basically synesthesia and like give people the ability to sense magnetic fields with their body mm. with like neuralink type stuff um and implants so like it's uh yeah, I mean, those other, that's the other side of it is those, those other modes of perception are, like, on their way. Wow. It's a brave new world. <laughs> <laughs>